Bonjour, je vous prie de vous asseoir. Please be seated. Alors, dans le dossier... His Majesty the King, et al. versus Maxime Bertrand Marchand. For the appellant, His Majesty the King, Lina Thériault, and Nicolas Abran. For the appellant, the... Prosecutor General of Quebec, Alexandre Dubal, Michel Deon, Sylvain Leboeuf, Julie De Silva. For the intervener, the Director of Public Prosecutions, Julie Laborde, François Lacasse. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Valerie Bailey, Jennifer Trehearn. For the intervener, Attorney General of Saskatchewan, Grace Hessian David, Catherine Roy. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Andrew Berg. For the respondent, Maxime Bertrand Marchand, Samuel Berube. De Deus. For the intervener, Nunavik Civil Liberties Association, Christine Renault, Louis Nicolas Coupal Schmidt, and Victor Chalbano. For the intervener, Association Québécoise des Avocats et Avocates de la Défense, Hugo Casey. For the intervener, Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic, Nia Chu. For the intervener, Independent Criminal Defense Advocacy Society, Caroline L. Sanini. Ms. Theriot, please go ahead. Mesdames et Messieurs les juges, bonjour. Justices, good morning. I will take the first 35 or 40 minutes uh, to prove the uh, uh, demonstrably unfit sentence of five months handed down by the Court of Appeal. And my colleague Alexandre Duval will then speak about the constitutionally of uh, a mandatory minimum, minimum uh, uh, sentences in reasonable foreseeable applications. Before the first contact, a sexual contact, it does not make the subsequent offensive luring any less serious, and that is just as it's even more true when the adult has acquired knowledge about the child. And the offense must be evaluated in terms of protecting children and not erroneous considerations of law which might trivialize this. To underline 
my message. I'm going to uh, demonstrate this in two ways. First of all, the fact that uh, the offense of sexual contact was consummated three times before the adult uh, was accused of luring does not diminish the seriousness of the harm that the child suffered. Here, luring is based on the continuous grooming of the victim on social media simply to continue the sexual assault. Excuse me, Ms. Thériault. Uh, in On the respondent's side, it says that the uh, charges uh, cover a limited period concerning the luring. Now, should that be taken into account? Answer. What we claim is that the period in question, that is February 2015 to September 2015, already justified a, a sentence of 12 months. So if there was a charge uh, concerning as of uh, August 2013, well, it's possible, but here we have a limited time period with uh, knowledge that the, uh, res that the respondent has uh, acquired about the children and uses to his advantage to make the child even more vulnerable. For us, uh, simply that period justifies the sentence of 12 to 15 months. Secondly, what we are going to try to prove today is that the offence uh, in uh, Le Ving and Le Legere is not a yardstick to evaluate luring. It's just a way of committing the offence. The nature of the crime is the use of telecommunication to facilitate the underlying offences and that is what the respondent did. The crime committed offline was uh, used, was uh, facilitated by the uh, online communication. As part of your plea, and given the uh, standard of intervention in Lacasse, I think uh, that you need us uh, guide us through where the trial, where you believe the trial judge erred. Uh, for example, the specific paragraph on the question that my colleague just brought up, in terms of the charge and the time period as concerns the de facto consent. And if you, true, if you find that the response uh, from the judge uh, is suitable to you, first of all, I would like to uh, point you to the paragraphs that, uh, that uh, was committed by the trial judge and then supported by uh, the appeal judges. Paragraphs 64 and 67 support the trial judge's decision. And uh, Justice Kazur, in terms of your question, we don't think that uh, the trial judge needs to be deferred to because there were clear errors of principle that were committed and that uh, bear witness to the misunderstanding of uh, the very misunderstanding of this offense. So, so. These are really errors of principle. The first is that uh, the uh, the fact that the the fact that the sexual contact happened before the luring makes uh, the luring less serious, and the fact that uh, considering that uh, the luring case here was not a classic case. So not only that 
does that categor categorization not exist in law, but in fact, in fact, this allowed the um, the respondent to exploit the child even further. Now, you said that the sentence was demonstrably unfit, and now you're saying there are errors of principle. So we need you to uh, clearly guide us through what the errors of principle are and how it defected the sentencing. Or are you going to go on the demonstrable, demonstrably unfit side? Please be as specific as possible because uh, it will uh, help you and help us understand. If I may quickly focus on something, is that indeed the sentence in of five months is demonstrably unfit in our opinion with regard to the mandatory minimum sentence of uh, 12 to 15 months for this offense. But we want to focus on the errors of principle because we believe that the trial judge misunderstood the offense as such. And so we need to focus on these errors of principle because it could have a broader effect on other luring cases that could be committed by offenders in this modern generation. And that is what we are trying to prevent in future. Inaudible for the interpreter. The fact that the, uh, the justice treated the uh, initial sexual contact uh, inappropriately in your opinion. So do you believe uh, that the use of the word consent, would you say that that is an error of principle? What do we do with that? Answer, we believe that the use of the word uh, consent and the vocabulary used to describe the sexual relations, uh, for example, a sexual escapade completely undermines the seriousness of uh, this offense and it trivial trivializes it as well. So that's one of the errors of principle. The trial judge should have taken into account how serious this uh, offense is. But today I'm not going into, I'm not going to go into detail on the use of uh, these terms because uh, that vocabulary aside, in our opinion, the very reasoning that underpins the five-month sentence is sufficient to prove that there were major errors of principle. Question. My colleague raised a point that is uh, not simply uh, one of lexicon. Yes, perhaps the judge used terms that trivialize this offense and its seriousness, its gravity, but the very concept, concept of consent is not simply lexical. A child cannot give consent. So can we not say, to follow up on uh, Justice Cote's comment, that this is a sign of an error of principle and not an unfortunate choice of words? Answer, yes, and that is what we said in our factum. The in fact, uh, you, you might remember that in Friesen, it was an error of principle. And it should not be a mitigating factor. 
And what about de facto consent? What do you make of that term? Because that appears in case law. De facto consent, in our opinion, contrary to what the, uh, ma the majority uh, judge said, well, we believe that that is problematic here because the judge said that the subsequent luring was less serious because uh, the uh, sexual relations had already taken place. Okay, well then, what about sexual interference, sexual touching? How do you describe the attitude of the victim in this case here, in the case at bar? Because I think we need to be specific here because the legislator says that a child cannot give consent. And I'm talking about consent seen from the perspective of uh, law referring to sexual assault and uh, associated crimes. How, what can we do here to help the courts properly describe this? Because you're saying we're, going, we're talking about the nature of the offense here and it uh, has to do with the following analysis. How do we do that? Answer. The concept of consent is unfortunately still today used by the courts to describe a certain dynamic between uh, the accused and, and a victim. And in our opinion, as we said in our factum, that is, is a use that should uh, be denounced. In the Belgeron case, this dynamic is described between the accused and the victim. And what is said is that it's not because a victim seems to consent or seems to uh, participate freely in sexual relations with an adult that it is less harmful. On the contrary, it is up to the adult to ensure that that supposedly happy relationship, it should not continue because this can have repercussions in the future on the victim as uh, this court nope. recognized in the Friesen ruling. So it is always the responsibility of the adult to end such, a, this, such an illegal relationship. And here on the contrary, instead of ending the relationship, the respondent exploited the vulnerability of uh, the victim who was, already in, who was already in love with him and he used his knowledge of the victim. He knew that she was attached to him and that she was vulnerable and he exploited that to continue the relationship. So it is very problematic that an accused should take advantage of this attachment. But in, this, in the, the case at bar, it is even clearer that it was done consciously. The victim uh, tell, told him that she felt exploited and yet he pursued the sexual assaults in order to um, meet his own sexual needs, in order to satisfy his own sexual needs. And I, I, I'm not sure if I clearly answered your question. Well, Thank you. Yes, but I would like to know, is there another word that we could use instead of de facto consent? Because it gives me the, 
it, it uh, lacks the concept that the child cannot provide consent. So do we need to uh, change the lexicon around that? Do you have another suggestion for us that uh, could omit uh, de facto from consent from the consent term? There are a number of terms in the case law, for example, participation. Participation does require some willingness from the victim, so I'm not sure that's the right term either. So a victim who engages in or succumbs to the advances of an adult, I think it's more along those lines, succumbing, not participating voluntarily or consenting even though legally she couldn't. Uh, I'd prefer to talk about a victim succumbing to the seduction or the grooming or the trickery used by the accused. I think that's the best way to describe the dynamic and to avoid normalizing it like the uh, majority and the trial judge did in this case. Well, even succumbing, personally, I feel we're getting kind of far away from the violence that's implicit in this type of offense. I'm not sure that you're on the right track there. I, I mean that in the friendliest possible way. Well, if this court had a suggestion uh, for a better term uh, that reflected fully the prejudice, the harm suffered, uh, and also the naivete of the victim and so on, well, I'd be the first to salute you. I don't know what the proper term should be, but I would agree that saying that the victim consented or participated willingly or engaged in sexual activities, all of that's inappropriate. It doesn't reflect the blameworthiness of the conduct at issue. And the consequences are that this is going on increasingly online these days. Well, we could say that uh, the victim's perspective is completely irrelevant in assessing the accused's conduct. In other words, uh, we're playing with words here, participates, consents, de facto consent, and, but ultimately the child cannot consent. So we should simply pay no attention to the child's, uh, whether the child, how the child participates, or in game, whatever the word is. Uh, because the consequences on the life of the child are what matters here. Yes, I think the reaction might be a good way. It's a good way of looking at things, because unlike the majority who used that consent as a simple chronological fact in the uh, fact scenario, uh, no, uh, it goes to the very heart of the offense. The child was a vulnerable child, was a minor. They can't consent, and it shouldn't be part of the, the fact situation. And it shouldn't be relevant to the blameworthiness of the accused's behavior. Coming back to the first error committed by the majority, and which led to the exchange we just had on consent, well, on the participation of the victim. The fact is that the drafting of the provision in question, uh, was it was not drafted uh, 
to focus on the first offense, the, the, the first step in the grooming. And that can't be used to subsequently diminish the gravity of future offenses. So whether it's the first event or the fourth event, as in the case at bar, the, blameworth the blameworthiness remains the same. Parliament sought to criminalize all communications with a view to grooming or sexual interference. And the exchanges at issue in this case were all with a view to perpetrating further sexual in interference. Luring is not an accessory or related activity. It's a crime. It's an offense in and of itself. And what the majority did here was to deny the distinctiveness of the offense of luring. So each and every conversation in this case reflects a renewed intent, a renewed criminal intent on the part of the accused. There's an interesting parallel with paragraph 133 of Friesen at tab 5, which says that each additional offense is a, is a, a new offense and increases the likelihood that the risks of long-term harm will materialize. So each further instance shows a continued and renewed choice by the offender to continue to violently victimize children. So all re-victimization should be captured and that's why in our view each re-victimization or, or attempt is just as serious as the first. Another important part from Friesen is paragraph 125. And this says that it it's, happens quite often in luring cases that the manipulation, that the grooming occurs over a period of months and it's in, with a view to building a trust relationship. So, for the period covered by the charges in question, you can see this ongoing manipulation, the exploitation of the victim's vulnerability and so on, and it was repeated. For example, there are cases where the predator sought to catch the victim halfway on her way home, halfway home. Uh, so th these strategies are repeated in order to reach the ultimate goal again. So should previous crimes diminish the seriousness of these repeated attempts? No. the more the respondents' comments are insidious or designed to exploit the sexual immaturity of a child, the more that uh, tactic attempts to lower the victim's inhibitions and creates anxiety and other consequences 
among the victim. For example, in this case, the victim said she was afraid of the consequences if she was if she arrived late. So the more the accused's behavior is an attempt to exploit the victim's vulnerability, the more it shows how key the grooming was uh, to the offense of luring. And the law required the majority, in our view, in this case, to look at the facts before it. Each communication is no less blameworthy than the previous communication. And this was an error of law. The Court of Appeals should have, they, they took into account the victim's consent, they took into account the harm that had already been done. And if that hadn't happened, a five-month sentence could not have been upheld by the Court of Appeal. How are we to deal with the trial judge's use of the, she decided that the means of communication that was chosen was a generational choice. What should we make of that? The Court of Appeal, when it comes to the uh, generational choice uh, term, they, that was simply an observation. But in our view, the real finding here is that we're dealing with children who have increasing access to technology day in, day out. And thanks to the digital revolution, uh, predators have new tools to access and manipulate victims without getting caught. And they do this in a repeated and hidden way. So the presence of potential victims and sexual offenders in the same space makes children more vulnerable than they used to be. In other words, the internet today is a playground for predators. And unfortunately, it's very hard for law enforcement to monitor. And so the choice, the, the use of a term like generational choice is problematic because in this case, Facebook was the platform that was used. Do you have any other questions? No, no, go ahead. So f Facebook was the platform chosen by the respondent to commit his crimes. But that was the only way for him to track down the victim who he had previously met in person. And it was the only way for him to continue the communication uh, to gratify his own sexual needs. So it was uh, opportunistic. It was not sophisticated. It was... Uh, for example, it wasn't an anonymous use of the internet. That, but should that be less serious when we know that luring is facilitated by the easy access that everyone has, kids and adults alike, access to these platforms? In our view, the ease of access and the frequency of the, and the scope of the offenses are all factors that reflect the need for this court to condemn, to firmly condemn these activities, more so than in 2002 when the crime of, when well, the offense of luring was introduced into the criminal code. I have a question about the respondent's factum. If you look at page 12, it says offenses related to the victim's 
participation, uh, etc. And it talks about the fake Naples. file and so on, and that this should be irrelevant. Could you just give us your point of view on that argument? Which paragraph is that at? It's just above paragraph 29, uh, the heading that follows. They say basically in their factum, the respondents, that on the issue of consent, the term that we don't like, and the absence of a fake profile and so on, they say all of that has no impact on the sentence. I'd like to know what you have to say about that. Well, the error the judges made was to attempt to sanction behavior and sentence an accused based on what, uh, on what he wasn't rather than based on what he was. So there's a category of offenders that doesn't exist, in fact. And so what they've done is put aside all the evidence before them, going to the grooming that the respondent had engaged in, and which would have justified a sentence of 12 to 15 months in his case. These are not factors like anonymity, or previously having met the victim in person, those are not factors that make the behavior less blameworthy. So in this case, the criminal responsibility of the respondent was fully intact. And the fact that he knew the victim actually facilitated the access he had to the victim and the decision the respondent made not to hide his identity made sense under the circumstances. And he basically had no choice in this case but to reveal his true identity. So uh, the, a sentence of 12 to 15 months was justified. And the fact that the court considered the lack of anonymity, uh, the previous meeting in person... To say that that had no impact on the victim, in our view, it doesn't reflect the evidence on the record. So that's what I would say to that. I'm not sure if I answered your question appropriately. You are calling for a sentence of up to 15 months, uh, served consecutively, which is a total of 25 months. So uh, that seems uh, uh, consistent where, with your, uh, your original demand, which was uh, two years minus a day to be served in an, a provincial institution. Thank you for pointing that out because indeed the respondent is right in that case. Uh, we have always called for a sense of uh, two days, two years minus a day, and we're calling for the same thing here. So it is important for us that the sentence be imposed to reflect the separate nature of this offense. And, but indeed, 
uh, we're not uh, asking for 25 months, we're asking for two years minus a day. Yes, that's exactly what you asked for in the order in your uh, in your factum. So I just wanted to clarify. So yes, I'm yes. So unlike uh, what we called for, we are are calling for two years minus a day. And to uh, come back to your question, uh, Justice Kazer, with regard to the dissenting judge. In paragraph 2945, when he recognizes that the uh, judge unduly downplayed the seriousness of the offense and that the behavior, behavior of the respondent was uh, basically continuous grooming in order to have sexual relations with her, the dissenting judge called for a sentence of 12 months. And his reasoning, in our opinion, uh, aligns with our arguments and he recognizes with regard to the consecutive aspect that this, that this uh, offense should lead to consecutive sentencing but for the overall sentence a sentence of 12 months does not reflect the fact that the luring was a separate offense because it is harm that is repeated over time and if the respondent does not receive two years minus a day, then that separate offense is not being punished. The question. Seen from the perspective of the government, we can see that you have chosen not to appeal the sentence for the uh, consummation, which was only 10 months. And uh, now you're asking for 12 to 15 months. That might seem surprising at first glance. Now, uh, perhaps we're not bound by that. As you say, the separate nature, as you uh, clearly stated, the separate offense of this alluring brings us to a separate analysis of it. But how should we understand all of this in your opinion? You uh, talked about conditional sentencing and uh, well two months a given case law, the personal circumstances of the respondent Perhaps we're better off just leaving that there. So your comments, please. Answer. On your first point for not having appealed the 10-month sentence for sexual touching, we believe that that sentence is fit and appropriate, but we, are calling for, we were calling for 12 months. It's just a difference of two months with regard to the sentence that was handed down by the trial judge. Now, the, for, in terms of the demonstrably unfit criterion, well, we have to focus on the luring offense because the errors in law that were committed were with regard to the luring offense and not to the uh, sexual uh, relations or assault offense. And the sentence that we 
called for is consistent with Friesen. So there's been a learning curve. Is, is sh should we, Could we call for a, a longer sentence? Yes, definitely. But the sentence of 12 to 15 months and the sentence of 10 months, well, we have to keep in mind that uh, we have always seen those as being consecutive sentences. So there is the error of not imposing consecutive sentences and not taking into account the seriousness of luring. Those need to be remedied by the Court. Of, they should have been remedied by the Court of Appeal instead of... Uh, uh, this difference of two months, which simply didn't meet the demonstrably unfit criterion. And with regard to reincarceration, I believe that you were talking about conditional sentencing with regard to reincarceration. In our opinion, the seriousness of the crime justifies 12 to 15 months consecutively to be served. Unlike the solution proposed by the trial judge, well, we believe that the seriousness of the crime is an important element to consider for reincarceration and could be decisive here in the decision to reincarcerate. But what I might uh, say after reading the factum, after having, uh, after having read uh, the Hillback decision, I would say today before you that I am not sure that the interests of justice would be served by reincarceration because of uh, the time that has elapsed since 2017. And today, the hearing is in 2023. So uh, perhaps once the ruling is handed down, we'll have to wait uh, many months uh, yet. And so we don't believe that uh, uh, the interests of justice would be best served by reincarceration, but we are still underscoring the seriousness of this crime. Question: Is uh, the concept of combined the combined sentence is this relevant here? Are you aware of that concept of uh, combines the a combined sentence? And do you uh, do you have any submissions for us in that regard, or is that irrelevant? Answer. The Quebec Court of Appeal recognized that in terms of luring, sentences were generally imposed of 12 months, quite systematically. But here, the sentence that was being called for, for luring was 12 to 15. And in addition, the offense of sexual assault was committed. So if we were just looking at the luring and if uh, the sexual relations had not been consummated, uh, that is, if the uh, offender had not been able to uh, carry out his uh, vile intentions, then we would be calling for 12 to 15 months. But he actually victimized the victim even further. So we cannot look at these systematic 12-month sentences and say that's enough. We have to go beyond that. And uh, the concept of proportionality calls for a sentence of two years minus uh, a day, but it should not be take, but it should not be something like a sentence that is served in a federal penitentiary. Yes, but a combined sentence is an aspect of proportionality. It is encompassed in the broader concept of, of proportionality. 
but in my opinion, it's a problem that you did not address this uh, principle in your uh, documents. No, you're right, we did not uh, address this in three steps. But what we're calling for in our first step is that is a sentence of 12 to 15 months, and that in, a, in our second step that it be considered consecutively because luring is a separate crime, and in our third step with regard to proportionality and the principle of a combined sentence, if we uh, go with a sentence of 12 months, as suggested by the dissenting judge, then we believe that uh, w this will diminish the harm that was done to the victim, and uh, that has, uh, and it will reverse the trivialization that was that occurred. Uh, the objective gravity is the same for this offense, so we cannot presume that it uh, should stop at 12 months beca because uh, of the combined sentence concept. We, we say that, this, that two years minus a day is proportionate. Now, when we're talking about the crime of luring, should the principle be consecutive sentences instead of concurrent? Because, and I'm going to bore the words of... Uh, my wise uh, Justice uh, Kazurer with regard to this, the interests uh, of society that uh, is associated with that. And this is from Rayo. Do you think that uh, consecutive sentences should be a principle here? Could, w would you please uh, repeat the end of your question? Yes, because you're saying here that uh, the sentences should be consecutive, should be served consecutively. Perhaps you were, you uh, you stopped listening after wise uh, Justice Kazurer. Yes, so he, he so uh, the justice talked about uh, the interests, uh, societal interest that needs to be protected from luring. So, is that the basis for your reasoning with regard to consecutive sentencing? Well, I would say yes. In our opinion, generally, the crime of luring should also be lead should always lead to consecutive sentences, subject to the principle of combined sentence of a combined sentence. But uh, that would be the only exception, because it is a separate crime. It uh, it has it causes its own harm that is different from that of uh, the actual act. So we think uh, it should have it should have a broader scope, especially in the case at bar, where the lure was act, was actually catalyzed the uh, consummation of the act, and uh, Justice Rowe, that is how I am trying to respond to your question, is that uh, luring was led to sexual contacts. Well, there are two questions here. There is a link between the two. So is it appropriate in these circumstances to, uh, to call for a consecutive sentence? Because there are principles to choose between the two, consecutive and concurrent. 
So after having made that decision, there's another question that arises, and that is the application of the principle of, co of a combined sentence. From time to time, with the application of this principle, there is a variation between the length of the sentence and a choice between concurrent or consecutive sentencing. But there's a certain methodology that needs to be followed. The questions have to be addressed in order, in a certain order, according to the rules. And to me, that is a flaw to conflate all of these principles uh, in an intuitive fashion. I agree with you, Justice Rowe. Consecutive sentencing should come first before we talk about a combined sentence. But for us here, the last step in our process, we don't get to it in just any way because the facts before us amply justify the sentence that we're calling for. And uh, obviously, uh, out of fairness, that's not what we're doing today. To complete your answer to Justice Rowe, when analyzing the dissenting judge's opinion, where, uh, well, I'm at uh, 45, 46, 47 in of his reasons. He does follow the method that Justice Rowe re referred to. And that is the same methodology set out, for example, Rayo and others. As you said, in the third stage, we get to the principle of combined sentences. Now, in general, subject to the application of the combined sentence, he says at the end of 45 that normally the sentence should have been consecutive, the sentences should have been consecutive, and then he says it would be excessive given to these, given the specific characteristics of uh, the respondent and of the context, and then he says in 47, given the principle of combined sentence, and then he cites uh, different decisions, and there he gives his justification. Where do you disagree with him here? Answer. We disagree with the general gravity of the fence. So we're talking about uh, 12 months for sexual contacts that uh, lasted for two years and uh, for exploiting the vulnerability of the victim, the uh, continuous grooming of a uh, very uh, vulnerable victim. But 12 months at the time in a range of sentencing was uh, recognized as being appropriate. Today, under Friesen, we believe that the legislator wanted to crack down on these offenses. So uh, 12 months is at the lower end of the sentencing range. And that uh, seems to say that the um, respondent's behavior was less serious. And that is not what we believe. 
So we believe that the global or the overall sentence should be within a range that is not at the low end. You have 15 minutes left, and I suspect you wanted to leave some time for your colleague. Yes, I will turn it over immediately to my colleague Alexandre Duval. Good morning, Chief Justice, uh, Justices. Under, can you hear me? Sorry. Given Hills and Hillback, I will put my factum aside and talk about reasonably foreseeable situations uh, according to the teachings. Of, I don't want to interrupt you, but are you just going to talk about hypothetical situations? Yes, specifically, Justice Cote, but I think obviously 12 months is not cruel and unusual for the respondent. Okay, so in this case, the trial judge said it, it was cruel and unusual to the respondent. She said the sentence was five months and the mandatory minimum of 12 uh, just by operation of math. And the majority of the Court of Appeal upheld that decision. Are you going to talk about the trial judge's errors in that regard? Because she did do analysis, an analysis under Section 12 to arrive at the finding that it was cruel and unusual for the accused. Uh, Justice, I can answer your question quickly. First of all, if you follow Hills and Hillback, I won't repeat what my colleague already said, but obviously five months is not the right number. And when you play with the numbers and you get up to 12 months or more, that uh, solves the problem. Obviously, 12 months, when 12 months was possible, it's not cruel. And if you feel that five months was not demonstrably unfit, then we'll go to the second step of the analysis. And under Hill and Hillback, obviously, it's not cruel. There were errors made by the trial judge and by the majority of the Court of Appeal. Uh, and uh, you can simply find it, it, the, the court just jumped to the conclusion that it was cruel. And if you follow the criteria, the test in Hills and Hillback, uh, and particularly the last part of the test, uh, uh, the question that a, a longer prison sentence will have more of an impact, uh, that we don't deny that. But the difference between 12 and 5 months, well, it's, it's obviously it was a, a, a possible sentence. And when it comes to the sanction and the purposes, given the seriousness of the offense in this case and Parliament's choice to emphasize deterrence and condemnation, I think uh, that fully justifies uh, the Parliament imposing a mandatory minimum because of the uh, how harmful this is to Canadian values, i.e. the importance of protecting our children. So uh, if you don't intervene on the sentence, I think the five versus 12 months, it just simply shouldn't reach the uh, constitutional standard of grossly disproportionate. Well, uh, 
the adversarial process is perhaps the best way to test uh, hypotheticals. So I'd like to know, uh, the respondent uh, raises a number of uh, potential reasonably foreseeable situations, such as we've seen in previous case law. One involved exchanging pornographic materials. Would you agree that if those scenarios were reasonably foreseeable, the, the, the one you just specifically mentioned about exchanging pornographic material? Uh, no, in our view, that's not a reasonably foreseeable scenario. It has to be disregarded or at least uh, changed, altered in some way. What about uh, Barrette and, and would you agree that uh, those situations are reasonable? Well, in Oud, yes, that situation, in my view, that's uh, at the lower end of the spectrum, but uh, yes, indeed, it's uh, similar to uh, uh, the real Ms. Oud. When it comes to Caron Barrette, I think that situation is a bit dangerous. It has to be applied to luring because in that case it was sexual interference, not luring. And if we were to go by de facto consent, I think we need to be careful. But we're talking uh, a 15 to 21 year uh, situation like in Morrison so that it would be a clear case that fits into the provision. I don't remember the other case. I don't remember what the age difference was, age difference was in that other case. But uh, I think we need to be careful that the consent, that the victim was not of the age of cons to consent. So the one you mentioned in your factum, you said that's not a reasonably foreseeable situation. The, but in the other two examples, you agree that those would be reasonably foreseeable? Yes, but I think you have to adapt the Caron Barrette one uh, to luring and also pay attention to the age difference. And to justify why I said that the first case, the exchange of pornographic material, uh, would have to be altered or disregarded. Basically, the respondent uh, placed that uh, uh, at the edge of situations like in Sharp. There were three conditions in Sharp, whether it's legal, whether there's consent, and whether it was for personal use only. So at the extreme, uh, those that's... If you, if you bring it back to luring, where the person has to have the specific intent of facilitating the underlying offense that would be committed if they were physically in each other's presence, the victim and the accused. So when it comes to luring, it's a situation where we have to raise questions. As, does this really fall squarely within the law? So it's open to interpretation, and as the court said in Hills, this distorts the situation a little bit. And it's not based on the court's experience. It's not a prerequisite to have an actual situation that resembles it. I agree. But when you look at the Canadian case law in cases like this, are there any cases where one of the three criteria is clearly not met, which is whether it's the age, uh, the ability to consent, 
or, or what have you. Go ahead. Coming back to your two scenarios where you say it is reasonably foreseeable, could you carry on and explain how you, Section 12, what, what's your reasoning under Section 12? Yes, obviously the more favorable, the, the lower end case is UD. For example, the fact that the person was a teacher, there was a trust relationship or an authority relationship, uh, obviously that's a, an aggravating factor. And if you have a 21-year-old and a 15-year-old, like in this case where there were exchanges, telecommunications with a view to committing a further sexual interference offense, I think in this case, given the significant mens rea, the use of telecommunications to facilitate the commission of an offense, uh, 6 to 12 months would have been appropriate in our view. 12 months being at the lower end of the appropriate range because the range has to be upgraded uh, has been upgraded since then, but given the young age and the mental uh, health issues of the victim, I think that brings it, you could say that it brings us closer to the six months, but given the harm to the victim here, because this is a situation that resembles hills back more, hill back rather more than hills, so here there was still a significant risk of harm, even a simple exchange of texts with a young victim who is below the age of consent, that creates a significant risk of harm. Psychological harm, uh, and also the danger of the actual sexual interference offense occurring if the young person were to succumb, or whatever term we ultimately land on, uh, to follow through on the exchange if the victim asked for a photo, her to send a photo, there's a serious risk of harm to the victim, as this court has previously found. Even if it's not a real victim, even if it was an undercover police officer. So, in view of all that, I think six months would be the very minimum. But I think we're getting closer to 12 months in this case. And if you m move to the next stage, the grossly disproportionate stage, and you apply the three criteria in that test. So to answer your question, Justice Cote, the first step, going a little slower here, the scope. Yes, I agree that the scope of the offense is very broad, the, the offense of luring. And why is that? Well, it's to protect children, given the technological access that people have. It's a very dangerous access uh, because children's inhibitions are lowered. It, technology allows predators to send messages night and day and eventually the child could relent. Uh, and so that's why Parliament focused on that means of commission of uh, the offence. Uh, your time's running up, Council. But let's agree that Friesen uh, kind of shook things up in this area of the law uh, since Morrison. Morrison did not have the advantages of Friesen. So, and also with our understanding of technology, our understanding of the potential harm uh, of the activities in question, 
grew, perhaps we're more keenly aware of the dangers at stake here. But should those changes affect our constitutional analysis? Should freezing and the sense that we have that technology is a bigger threat than we realized back then, should that affect our reading of the Constitution? Not of Hills and Hillback, because those were different offenses. Yes, absolutely. Given the changes since Morrison and Friesen, I think there are some passages in Morrison, if you look at the case law where there were uh, discharges, uh, absolute discharges and so on, or conditional discharges, those are no longer appropriate. I don't think today we can say that the lower end of the range is a discharge or probation. Yes, there are decisions in Canada where there was probation was the, uh, the sentence, but I think post-freezing, if we're to follow the teachings of this court and all our understanding of the harm, the psychological harm and so on, and the importance of deterrence and condemnation, I think those precedents have to be pushed aside. And uh, to come back to Moldaver's decision in, uh, Justice Moldaver's decision in uh, Morrison, I think it's important that the sentence send a clear signal of deterrence and condemnation. So I think if you look at the, the sanction and the objective, the last criterion, and what Parliament's uh, objective was, I think we have to keep that all in mind. It's a very serious offense. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, my, my question is whether the threshold of what would be morally reprehensible would be identical in all cases uh, when clearly some situations would be more serious than others. But uh, if you, once you hit a minimum threshold of blameworthiness, perhaps uh, as the court explained uh, in distinguishing Hills and Hillback, uh, are we, have we reached that point? I think this will capture uh, more serious offenses in certain case, cases, even at the lower end. I would submit that, yes, there is uh, moral blameworthiness in having uh, inflicted this on, ch on uh, a child is uh, blameworthy in all cases. And there is case law that handed down uh, sentences that uh, do not reflect that. And 12 months is a starting point, in our opinion, of what is appropriate. But in many cases, it should be higher. Therefore, I think with the uh, few seconds that are left to me, I think uh, that in these foreseeable uh, applications or situations, when a young offender of 18 or 21 years when we're talking about that kind of case, we need, we recognize through Hills and Hillback the importance of protecting children. Thank you. Alexandre Duval.
spoke already? No, that was the brown, okay. Ah, you so, uh, okay. Ah, my apologies. Uh, Ms. Laborde, please. Oui, bonjour, mesdames et messieurs les juges. Good morning. On behalf of the uh, Director of Public Prosecutions, uh, we uh, we have notified, uh, we have taken note of Hills and Hillback, but uh, we are going to deal with the three elements that uh, should guide the analysis of uh, grossly disproportionate sentences. But first, I would like to offer a response to a question that was raised when Mr. Zubal spoke with regard to a, a, the reasonable hypotheticals, uh, for example, with regard to, to the respondent, for example, when a man asks his uh, a girlfriend to send him pornographic material, for example, photos of herself. So in our opinion, it, it is not reasonable because the three accumulative uh, criteria of SHARP combined with uh, the teachings of this court in Barabash, well, this does not cause exploitation under 153. Uh, the girlfriend has consented to uh, take uh, the photo and send it to her boyfriend for his personal use. And then if we say that uh, the young man keeps it for his personal use, well, because the young man has not committed a crime with regard to the possession and production of pornography, neither he will be neither will he be guilty of luring because he does not intend to facilitate the commission of a crime. It is if later this young man does not respect the commitment that he made to his girlfriend and distributes this material, well then he will be exposed to this offense of distributing a juvenile per pornography but not luring unless uh, retroactively it can be proven that originally had he had the intent of uh, distributing this material and then the grooming that he did with her proves moral blameworthiness and uh, fully justifies the mandatory minimum sentence <clears throat> now the harm that the young woman was exposed to is not uh, less serious because the offender is young. It is not his age that uh, reduces moral blameworthiness in this case. If this young man has communicated with a minor through telecommunication with the intent to facilitate uh, the production and possession of pornography, then he has committed a serious crime and the minimum sentence is justified. Now, could other personal circumstances mitigate this uh, mandatory sentence? But is it grossly disproportionate given the gravity of this offense, which has been recognized over and over by this court? No. So I will now uh, talk about the constitutional issue of uh, the mandatory minimum with regard to the two crucial elements uh, that were identified by Hill and Hillback, that is the scope and the impacts. 
I have comments on the third element, uh, but uh, they have more to do with uh, the case tomorrow. So the first element I would like to uh, address is the specific intent and the high moral blameworthiness for luring, which could be at first glance is seemed to imply uh, overbroad scope. Now, this court said in Morrison that uh, luring can be committed in many different circumstances. But, and why is this? Because the legislator has to take into account uh, the modern means of uh, telecommunication and the so many, and the many, many ways that an adult can enter into contact with a young person. So this broad scope of uh, actus reus brings together the common thread of this moral blameworthiness that needs to be recognized with regard to these offenders and with regard to the major harm that is caused to the children who are victimized. Question. First, you have said what was expressed in Morrison by this court about the very broad scope of grooming. You recognize that actus, the actus reus can take different forms, but you say, but that's uh, mitigated by the fact that the provision requires a, a very high degree of mens rea, both with regard to age and intent to commit the underlying offense. Yes, and to come back to what Justice Kesserer said, the moral responsibility of any offender who is found guilty of child luring in 2023 with the understanding that we all have with of the moral blameworthiness of sexual assaults against children should cannot go below a th certain threshold and since Friesen, this threshold is represented adequately by the mandatory minimum which is provided for such offenses. And we must remember that all offenders show this moral blameworthiness and this specific intent because this crime unless unlike uh, the reasonable hypotheticals that were there in certain cases this luring can never it can never be separated from moral blameworthiness luring always exposes society and children to harm and that is why the legislator wanted to make this a separate offense that uh, reflects its, its, his interest in protecting society. Now, the effect of the mandatory minimum on offenders who have, a, who have cognitive difficulties, first of all, what is the effect of the uh, directives given with regard to sentencing for luring? Now, the lower end of the sentencing range for luring followed by an indictable offense was 12 months. In Friesen, the, uh, sentencing, the sentences did not reflect uh, the 
offenses and so courts must uh, respect this and protect society by imposing harsher sentences. So what is the effect on uh, mandatory minimums for luring? We say that there are three. First, what I said at the outset, the mandatory minimums now reflect a, a minimum threshold of the gravity of uh, the moral blameworthiness required and to, be, to ensure that the offenders are found guilty. Because there might be mitigating factors or personal circumstances such as mental health problems and These need to be reflected in the sentences. So that, so here we're talking about uh, judges can include uh, probation offenses for a community reintegration. Now, with regard to Friesen, the duration does not go beyond what is necessary to uh, achieve the objectives of uh, denunciation and deterrence. And third, since um, harsher sentences are now required, we can conclude that the mandatory minimum will not result in longer periods of incarceration, if, and if they do, it will happen very rarely. So with regard to offenders who have mental health problems, we see in Friesen that this is a personal circumstance that the judge must take into account because it influences the degree of moral blameworthiness of the offender. But here's our comment with regard to luring. The criminal intent, the level of it is high. Now, if the mental health problem does not contribute to this high level of blame then uh, the amender then the offender must be held responsible for that as well that is the end of my representations thank you good morning justices ontario's submissions will focus on an issue that is engaged or at least potentially engaged in both this appeal and hv tomorrow and the issue is related to the elements of the offense of child luring, specifically what the Crown is required to prove in relation to the accused knowledge of the complainant's age when the complainant is a real child as opposed to an undercover officer. And the reason why Ontario is making these submissions is because there have been some statements about this element in these appeals that are incomplete in that they only address one of the two ways that child luring can be committed they only address what this court said about the knowledge of age element in Morrison, which was confined to undercover stings. Any comments this court makes on the elements of the offense in the context of these appeals could have significant implications for the law in this area, not only for the interpretation of child luring, but also for other offenses, including sexual interference and invitation to sexual touching. So Ontario is making these submissions to bring the court's attention to this issue and specifically to ask the court not to extend its decision in Morrison beyond the context of undercover sting operations. Starting with the wording of the provision, section 172.1, 
provides that child luring can be committed in two ways. The first is by communicating with someone who is underage, and the second is by communicating with someone who the accused believes is underage. For the most part, both modes of committing the offense share common elements. They both require the Crown to prove that the accused intentionally communicated by means of telecommunication, and they both require the Crown to prove that this was done for the specific purpose of facilitating the commission of an enumerated offense, which are sexual offenses, human trafficking, or child abduction. And this latter element, the specific purpose to facilitate, is, as my colleague mentioned, a high degree of mens rea. This court described it in Lagar as a subjective standard of fault that helps to ensure that innocent communication will not be unintentionally captured. It's important to note that both modes of child luring require this element to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. Both modes therefore Can I involve... stop you here, though, and just say in Lagar, um, I, I'm, are you clear what went to mens rea and what went to actus reus in Lagar? No, and part of what this court said in Lagar is that it, it is somewhat unclear in this case, that, or in, in, in terms of this offense, that given the, the elements that were described in Lagar, the intentional communication by means of telecommunication, and then the specific purpose of facilitating, it's a bit difficult to separate out actus reus and mens rea, and they should just be thought of in terms of these are the constituent elements. So it might be more accurate than to describe it simply as a high degree of intent in light of the fact that specific purpose does go to, to intent. And in any event, that is a, an element that is elevated. There is this specific purpose that is required. There is also a final element of the offense that differs depending on whether the recipient of the communication is an undercover officer or a real child. And this is what this court addressed in Morrison, uh, where this court addressed undercover stings and held that in an undercover sting, where the code says the accused must believe they are communicating with an underage person, the Crown is required to prove actual belief or willful blindness as to age. And in that context, undercover stings, recklessness or failure to take reasonable steps to ascertain age are insufficient. At paragraph 55 of Morrison, this court specifically said that the reasons in Morrison were restricted to the specific context of a sting operation where there is no underage person. And then this was reiterated again at paragraph 81. But as a result of some other passages in Morrison, there has been some confusion in Ontario courts as to whether Morrison changed the elements outside of the context of undercover child luring stings or for other offenses with similar defenses of mistaken belief in age. And the language that led to this confusion was at paragraph 88 of Morrison, where this court was discussing the George case, which was a sexual interference and sexual assault case, and suggested that from a, a legal perspective, the Crown negating the defense of mistaken belief in age in George would not necessarily lead to a conviction because the Crown had to go further and prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused believed the complainant was under 16. There has not been any appellate jurisprudence discussing this particular issue in relation to luring a real child since Morrison, but the Ontario and British Columbia Courts of Appeal have addressed the issue in the context of other offenses. 
the Ontario Court of Appeal addressed the issue in the context of the offense of invitation to sexual touching in Carbone. And what the Court of Appeal for Ontario concluded was that while this court's decision in Morrison was confined to undercover luring stings, the passages discussing George did mandate a change to how mens rea for invitation to sexual touching is understood. The failure to take reasonable steps was previously sufficient for a conviction for that offense, but now in Ontario there is a distinct mental element related to knowledge of the complainant's age. However, unlike in undercover luring stings, recklessness suffices to make out this element, and a failure to take reasonable steps will amount to recklessness in virtually all cases. And the court in Carbone... Are, are you asking us to provide a clarification among these cases, which I'd question whether this is a proper vehicle to do so, or are you simply asking us to avoid contributing to the confusion, which may well be a proper submission? The latter is what, the, what Ontario is asking here, not to, essentially not to comment on this issue or extend Morrison further than Morrison said it, it, it applied in the context of these sentence appeals. But, but do we have to? I mean, it's, it's quite clear on the facts of this case that uh, um, the offender knew she was 13. Yes, and Ontario's view is that it's not necessary to comment on these issue, this particular issue, but the reason why we're making this submission is because there have been comments made by parties in this appeal, including the respondent, Mr. Marchand, that have taken the elements of this offense directly from Morrison and are therefore incomplete. And also we're making this submission because the scope of the offense can be relevant to the Section 12 analysis. Right, and I do understand that the mens rea component here will have a bearing on whether it's constitutional, constitutional or not, right? It could. Ontario's view is that, it, at least in relation to this issue, it, it doesn't have a bearing. And the reason for that is that when there's an undercover officer, it, the nothing less than actual belief in age or willful blindness will suffice, and the Crown must prove the specific intent to facilitate an enumerated offense. And where there's a real child, if recklessness or failure to take reasonable steps is enough, the important thing to note is that real harm is done when there's a real child. And in any event, even if recklessness is sufficient in relation to that one element, this is not a negligence-based offense because of the requirement in all cases to prove that subjective intent to facilitate an enumerated offense. And the enumerated offense are, offenses are, of course, very serious. They're child sexual abuse offenses, human trafficking, child abduction. In Ontario's submission, acting with the intent to facilitate any of those offenses is highly morally blameworthy. And luring a child is entirely unlike the situation this court discussed in Hills, in which an accused recklessly discharges a paintball, airsoft, or BB gun, because an accused who communicates with a real child for the purpose of facilitating one of these offenses has caused harm. Not a risk of harm, as in shooting an airsoft gun at a house and being reckless as to whether anyone might be around, but real harm done to that real child. So for that reason, Ontario submits that the court should not comment on this issue and contribute to the confusion that has existed. If there is any issue to be resolved in this respect, it should be done in, in an appeal where it is a ground of appeal. 
And in any event, this, this issue has no real bearing on this appeal because of the high degree of intent required with the specific purpose to facilitate and because actual harm is done when, when real children are involved. Thank you. Uh, Grace Hessian-David. Thank you. Uh, the province of Saskatchewan wishes to thank this court for the recent clarification of the mandatory minimum section 12 analysis. And we will confine our comments to the second stage of the gross disproportionality analysis. And we will present our submissions that way. But be before I do, uh, Saskatchewan, we would just like to weigh in on, on some of the questions that have been asked already today. Uh, in particular, the first issue is the, is the uh, consideration of an alternative term for de facto consent. And, and that was raised earlier with uh, my friend, the province of Quebec. And, and Saskatchewan uh, would like to refer to the Rayo decision because the one thing that the theme underlining that decision from the Quebec Court of Appeal in 2018 was uh, throughout the entire judgment was the, the, the reference to psychological manipulation. And the court, that court said that psychological manipulation is the very heart of the offense. And so we, we submit that perhaps the, the alternative term could be uh, a man manipulated consent or a psychologically manipulated consent, which would truly reflect the mens rea of the offense. And that actually, uh, you know, really bears, we submit on the issue of the third hy hypothetical of the exchange of, of pornographic material, because we submit that particular hypothetical doesn't really carry with it the psychologically manipulated uh, uh, aspect of luring. So that's what we wanted to say about that. Now, Justice Rowe also had a question with respect to the, obviously, the, the real issue uh, was proportionality and totality, but whether or not, you know, uh, luring is a separate offense from one of the enumerated offenses listed in, in Section 172.1. And so, again, uh, we refer to Rayo because in paragraph 141, the court said that it is the prevention, the fact that child luring is an inchoate offense, it is the prevention of the psychological manipulation of children for sexual purposes, which justifies the existence of a, a separate crime. And so Saskatchewan found that very helpful. Now, getting back to our, our submissions, um, in yes, paragraph but, 129, but, 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 but I mean, uh, I, I don't want to belabor it because it's a small point, but breaking into the, the gas station is one offense. Breaking open the vending machine is another offense. Ordinarily, if they're part of one criminal enterprise, you give consecutive sentences. I mean, so the fact that they're separate offenses, uh, uh, concurrent, I beg your pardon, concurrent uh, sentences. Thank you. Uh, so the fact that they're separate offenses doesn't get you anywhere. You, you, you don't have the whole question of consecutive versus concurrent unless you've got separate offenses. Now, Rayo may well be uh, quite instructive as to the circumstances of luring and then the uh, offenses which follow. But the fact that there are two offenses really doesn't say very much. Well, I suppose it's, it's how you look at it, uh, Justice Rose. Saskatchewan views the grooming and the manipulation via the internet 
as being separate from anything that follows. And for instance, in the cases that we submitted in Saskatchewan, in particular the Miller case, it culminated in the sexual assault of a 13-year-old girl. We submit that those are two separate things, and that is one frame of analysis. All right, so in paragraph 129 of Hills, the court indicated that there were three main issues that could be addressed by a court when analyzing the scope and reach of the offense as laid out in the criminal code. The first one is, are we dealing with harm or merely the risk of harm? So the offense of child luring itself is deceitful and extremely harmful and almost always occurs when the child victim is in the safety of his or her own home. So therefore, we have an inchoate offense. It's preparatory for another crime. The enumerated offenses that are provided in section 172.1 of the criminal code clearly make out some of the most damaging offenses that can be committed against children in Canada. Just because the ages of the enumerated offenses range from 18 and under does not mean that the offense casts a wide net. As we noted, the ages of the potential victims, according to this section of the code, is a product of the underlying secondary sexual offenses that luring was intended to address. Now, Parliament recently acknowledged the harmful nature of the offence by refusing to repeal the mandatory minimum for child luring and the designated offences. Bill C-5 was given royal assent in November of last year, and it certainly repealed the mandatory minimum for many firearm offences, and in particular the offences that we were arguing in Hills and Hillbach. Clearly, the elected officials that make up the Parliament of Canada and the people of Canada are committed to ensuring that the scope and reach of the child luring provisions in the criminal code remain constant. We submit that the mandatory minimums reflect a forceful expression of government policy in this area of criminal law and as such reflect the collective values of the people of Canada. Now, Saskatchewan took great care to list the designated offences in our factum and to make a point. Child luring that leads to the commission of any one of the offences is a very serious offence, and it can cause incalculable danger to a child, as Friesen points out. Because child luring is an inchoate offence, it's possible that there can be a conviction for the offence alone, but once again, the level of mens rea that is required to prove this offence necessarily involves proof that the offender communicated with the victim with the specific intent of enacting one of the designated offenses. We submit that because we are dealing with young people 18 years and under, it becomes very difficult for the Attorney General of Saskatchewan to state that there is little danger attached to this offense. Only in cases of a police sting can it be conceded that the danger of harm is lessened, but those instances are sadly rare in terms of the proliferation of this internet offence. Is the right expression danger of harm, or is it actual harm realised? Good point. I agree, Justice Kessler, that it is actual harm. Talking about the issue of the mens rea, in order to obtain a conviction for child luring, the Crown must prove two very specific aspects of an offender's state of mind. First, that the offender knew the child in the, in the online interaction or was willfully blind. And second, that he had the specific intention of committing one or more of the designated offences. 
even if the designated offense is never committed. This is a high burden of proof, and we submit that as a result, the culpability of an offender is similarly elevated. Luring does not happen by chance. Grooming does not happen by mistake. There is planning and a base intent behind the offense of child luring. What about a situation in which there is a single event, the requisite elements of the offense are made out, but it's so amb ambiguous to the child, the child doesn't even know the consequence, like what's up? And yet, you know, that's sort of at one end of the spectrum. There's, 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 if it had continued, there would have been clearly significant harm. There was a single event. The child was perhaps confused by it, but didn't really get the, the significance of it. And yet, uh, away you go a year behind bars. And uh, that is not, uh, that's not a hypothetical from outer space. Justice Rowe, you know, the point I was trying to make earlier is that psychological manipulation may very well not be something that the child is aware of, and yet that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And that doesn't mean that it's not an element of the grooming for what's to come later. And, and as we've seen with many of the facts in these cases, and certainly in the cases that Saskatchewan presented in its factum to you, that it always starts off ambiguous. It always starts off with a greeting and an attempt to befriend the child, but it leads to such terrible degrada degradation later on. So, uh, uh, my, my, my hypothetical is it doesn't lead to anything because it stops after one incident and yet the mandatory minimum applies. I mean, that's my well, point. If, if it continues, then it clearly is a matter of some seriousness for sure. I guess it depends on what the communication was. I guess it depends on if the communication was just a hi, how are you? That's one thing. But if the communication was send me a picture of your genitals, that's quite different. And I would disagree that there was no harm with that. In any event, uh, you have our factum, you have our cases. The Miller case is extremely close to the facts here and that was a three year sentence. And there was a sexual assault in that case. Thank you very much. Thank you. Andrew Barg. Uh, good morning, Justices. Uh, Alberta strongly endorses the arguments of the appellants. We urge you to find, uh, for the reasons they've given and for the reasons in our factum, that the one-year minimum uh, for child luring does not infringe Section 12. And we echo the submissions that the thread that runs through all cases of child luring is the narrow specific intent to facilitate one of the listed offenses against a child. And this narrow mens rea justifies uh, the minimum. However, uh, to avoid repetition, uh, what I'll do with my time today is address the alternative argument that's included in my factum. And uh, it's our position there that if you do find, contrary to our primary position, that the one-year minimum does infringe section 12, the appropriate remedy uh, is to read in the six-month minimum that applies to summary uh, prosecutions of child luring and find that it applies to all offenders regardless of the Crown election. I realize in making this submission that this is a remedy of a type that this court has not granted before in uh, Section 12 litigation about mandatory minimum sentences. So it is uh, an unprecedented... Have we, excuse me, Mr. Barg, have we ever granted it anywhere? Uh, not just in the context of Section 12? 
I don't know of any case where this has been granted. Uh, however, the reason that I make this submission for an unprecedented remedy is the facts here are also uh, basically unprecedented. Uh, that is, there's never been a case before this court where Parliament has uh, enacted two mandatory minimum sentences for the same offense and where one has been invalidated, but the other, as I say, this is hypothetical because these rulings haven't been made, but where one has been invalidated and the other has been upheld. That's an unusual situation that's never been before this court in the past, except arguably in Morrison when the majority didn't get to this issue. And it's um, most likely, hopefully, will not arise again because Parliament at this point should have received the message from NUR that uh, making the applicable minimum contingent on the Crown election is, is, is not acceptable, doesn't work for the Section 12 analysis. So uh, on these very unusual circumstances, though I do respectfully submit, this is a pr an appropriate case where uh, a tailored remedy of reading in the six month minimum uh, is the best way to give effect to Parliament's intent uh, and still preserve the uh, effect of the law that's permissible within the bounds of the Constitution. Why six but months, from a, though, from I guess, a question, I'll... oh, excuse, go ahead. Why six months, though? I mean, Parliament's intent was to have one year. Anything between sort of one month and 12 would have been consistent with Parliament's intent. Why, why fix on six, apart from the fact that it also sort of is contingent on what happens in tomorrow's case? So I think that's a very good question and I want to and I want to give you a full answer. And I think this is something the court approached even in Schachter and also in Ferguson is that the court is not in a good situation to pick a number out of a, out of a range of different options. So if somebody had said, for example, in the NUR appeal where the minimum was three years, if the Crown had said, okay, you don't accept the three year minimum, but why don't you at least read in six months? Th that argument would have gone nowhere, I think, because six months would be a number picked out of the air. There's, there's nothing to say Parliament would have said six months or nine months or three months or who knows what. In this case, though, you ask why six months? And I say the answer is that is that what Parliament actually enacted for this exact offense. Parliament created a scheme where any person convicted of child luring will be subject to a minimum of at least six months. And in addition, they created this uh, provision where if the Crown elects to proceed by indictment, then a higher minimum of one year is triggered. And if this court finds that the higher minimum triggered by the Crown election infringes section 12, you can preserve Parliament's intention, uh, which I say is apparent from the scheme and read in the lesser minimum. So why six months? The answer is that's what Parliament chose. This court does not have to engage in some kind of an assessment to decide for itself what Parliament might have chosen because it is on the books. But that it's, minimum surely it's more than that. Is it not more than that, Mr. Barg? Is, is it not courts aren't institutionally designed to make policy? And here we have an institution that is designed to make policy, Parliament that has done so. And thus it partakes of the, the idea of, of deference that's opportune even in a constitutional charter challenge. 
Is there room for that kind of argument? Uh, in my submission, and I'm not sure if I'm quite understanding your question, but in my submission, uh, there is room for this sort of uh, ruling. And I make this point by analogy to some of the earlier cases. So for example, in Schachter, this was a case where um, the Employment Act provided certain benefits to parents, but uh, there was a differential basis. So female parents uh, were entitled to more benefits than male parents. So this infringed Section 15, and the court was forced to grant some kind of a remedy. So what's the proper remedy? Uh, and the court, of course, could have struck down the whole scheme and given nobody any benefits, but the court realized that that was not what part, that was nowhere close to what Parliament was trying to achieve. So uh, it was appropriate to grant a tailored remedy, uh, which best achieved the results, the goals of Parliament within uh, constitutional limits. But I guess the extension of Justice Jamal's question is that courts are actually institutionally designed to do one thing, which is tailoring more precisely than the six months would, and thus choosing between zero and 12 months in the exercise of judicial discretion at sentencing. I guess that's the, the question of institutional design is, is stands behind your alternative argument in that way. Hmm, that's, a, that's an interesting point. My submission, we're well, dealing with a case where Parliament has uh, made an intentional choice to restrict judicial discretion. And it's chosen to do that with the mandatory minimum of one year and also six months. So what this court should attempt to do in deciding what remedy to grant is consider whether it can ascertain what Parliament would have done if it had known that the one-year minimum should that occur? Yeah. I guess, I mean, we dealt with this in G and in other cases where we've said everyone has their role, their institutional function, and it's not the court's function to, to make the policy choices that government would make. You referred to NUR. Well, NUR was a hybrid as well. The court did not then look to the summary conviction. In fact, the contrary. So I just, this, you're asking us to go against our precedent and I've yet to hear a reason why we should depart from our precedents in this, in this way. Well, I say that NUR is different because there wasn't a minimum uh, for summary proceedings in NUR, at least if, if and I, if, unless I'm sadly mistaken. Take another case, Bryan. This was a case where the Alberta legislature made the choice to enact human rights uh, okay. protection Okay, can, can, uh, uh, can we just go back to, to the, what you're arguing for here? Uh, because what troubles me about your argument is that are we not then, if we accept your approach and take the six months, are we not then putting the judicial approval stamp on the six months as being an appropriate remedy, a constitutional remedy, when that issue is not squarely before us today. It is tomorrow, <laughs> but it's not today. And, and so wouldn't we be endorsing something that isn't, hasn't been argued in front of us if we do what you're saying today? Uh, okay, very good point. And this, the Ontario Court of Appeal, I think, has made the same point. In, uh, in addressing this uh, related argument. And it's a problem. If there was not going to be a ruling by this court on the six month minimum, 
then in order to decide my position, you would have to, uh, in this case today, as, as you said, Justice Martin, you'd have to rule on the six month minimum, which hasn't been properly argued uh, today. But I say that that problem is resolved by the fact that this court has wisely chosen to hear these two appeals uh, one day uh, apart. And we know that the court will be ruling on the validity of the six month minimum in the HV decision that's being argued tomorrow. So you will not find yourselves in a position where you have to decide, um, you have to make a decision on the one year minimum without proper basis to decide the six months as well. So I suggest that's not a barrier in this case, given the uh, competence of the court to decide both matters uh, at the same time. Thank you. Thank you. I guess Samuel um, uh, Beroube de Deux. Oui, merci. Donc, Madame les juges. Thank you. Justices, we'll be dividing our submissions into three parts. I'll deal with the errors in principle. Secondly, I will deal with the constitutionality of the mandatory minimum sentence of one year. And thirdly, I will quickly go over the need to reincarcerate the respondent. Uh, before I start, I'd like to point out that we fully recognize the fundamental importance of protecting children. As uh, was said, protecting children is one of uh, society's key roles. And uh, one of the worst things that can happen is sexual abuse of children. Given the reprehensible nature of these crimes, the goals of deterrence and condemnation have to be given priority. So, obviously, uh, in keeping with the Charter. And also, we agree with the argument that uh, a severe punishment is always appropriate in cases of luring, given the objectives sought. That said, it's our view that although there are very few alternatives to incarceration to that would enable us to reach the goals of deterrence and condemnation, the fact are that uh, in this case it would be inappropriate to uh, alter the sentence. Uh, counsel, I'm going to have to interrupt you. I think we need to take our morning break before you start over again. So we're going to take a 15 minute break now. Thank you. Merci. 
Alors, maître. OK. Council, you may begin. You have one hour. You may begin again, rather. Thank you, Justice Katsikanis. Uh, first of all, I'd like to mention that when it comes to luring, the principle of proportionality is a requirement uh, for a fair punishment. Furthermore, the other objectives of sentencing should not be neglected. For example, social rehabilitation. That's a, an objective that's... Uh, if I can just interrupt you on that point to the purposes of sentencing or the sentencing principles, do you think that our court's decision in April of 2020 in Friesen has any relevance? Because we talked about focusing on deterrence and denunciation. Do you think that that decision should impact our decision today? Yes, absolutely. We're of the view that putting the priority on deterrence and condemnation uh, is appropriate, but we shouldn't completely disregard rehabilitation in the case of a young offender who has a good prognosis for rehabilitation. I think that there's a balance to be struck between the various sentencing principles. That's what matters. Although, of course, deterrence and condemnation uh, should have, should take priority. I think that is what has guided this court and the trial judge in this case. And we'll see this also when we look at the case of hypothetical offenders. For example, general deterrence may take uh, more or less uh, center stage, uh, depending on, especially if the victim has uh, cognitive uh, issues. I don't know if that answers your question, uh, Justice, but uh, as I was saying, when it comes to luring, Parliament uh, set a threshold, which is a mandatory minimum jail sentence. Uh, and when you look at all the range of circumstances uh, possible, the blameworthiness of the offender varies greatly. And in other words, the crime is not always going to be so heinous that a one-year jail sentence is considered proportionate. So there are cases where, by comparison, the sentence could be so grossly disproportionate that it would shock the public conscience. So we would ask this court to declare the provision unconstitutional uh, and in violation of the charter in this case. When we consider the objective of protecting children, uh, basically uh, there are cases where the sentence could be excessive and would have no greater deterrent effect uh, than a lesser sentence. And the evidence brought by the intervener uh, referred to possible stereotypes. In our view, we have to take a modern view of this type of offense. That's what the court acknowledged in Friesen, and that's what should guide us in determining how blameworthy the conduct was in the case at bar. That said, I'd like to deal with uh, the appellant's submissions going to the sentence. First of all, I'll talk uh, briefly 
about the standard of intervention. I think Hills gives full guidance, more specifically when uh, there's a constitutional challenge to a min mandatory minimum, the, uh, w when there's an appeal from a sentence, uh, under the appropriate standard, it's only if the sentence is uh, shown to be demonstrably unfit that there should be an intervention. That's the Lacasse standard. And there has to be a comparative analysis. And the appellants are suggesting that a more permissive approach be taken. In our view, that's inconsistent with uh, the, what the trial judge did and, uh, and, and it's impractical, impracticable. Under Hills, it's our view that the trial judge made an appropriate sentence that was tailored to the circumstances of the crime and of the offender. So no error was committed in our view. When it comes to errors of principle, which the appellant has argued, first of all, we think it's useful to specify that the trial judge carefully gave, gave thorough reasons for her decision and the reasons enable us to understand how she exercised her discretion in determining what the appropriate sentence was. In our view, all the uh, relevant factors were weighed. We also submit that the trial judge's decision, her reasons should be examined as a whole. They should be taken together, both when it comes to the offense of luring and everything else. So there was uh, sexual in interference and luring, and a sentence had to be arrived at for both of those offenses. But the facts were very concise, and uh, there, we have on evidence the exchange of communication between the victim and the offender. When it comes to luring, the it was a period of six months that was at issue, as opposed to the actual previous sexual interference offense. The appellants did not seek to uh, alter the time frame, and neither did they attempt to change the relevant time period at sentencing. Counsel Justice Levesque dealt with that argument head-on, i.e. the argument uh, uh, about the wording of the provision at paragraph 145. He talks about grooming, ongoing grooming or psychological manipulation. And he put aside the technical argument about the dates in question and took a view of the overall situation instead. And he also dealt with the idea that the child consented three times, apparently consented three times, like the trial judge said at paragraph 70 of her reasons. And that would further weaken the textual argument about the, uh, the, the actual 
charge or the account, the wording of the count. Well, I agree that there are some weaknesses to that argument, but I think that the time frame in the, set out in the count did guide the trial judge in her decision. You'll see it in paragraph 62 and 63. For example, she said at paragraph 63 that the count of luring had to do with the Facebook communications, the exchange of messages on Facebook. So the trial judge defined the luring and the degree of grooming by the accused based on the evidence before her and the wording of the count. And that is why she focused at sentencing on when the sexual interference, there were a lot of factors that had more to do with the luring. So I think what she did was she she considered the overall context and the two offenses were intrinsically connected. So the sexual interference, when it came to that, the trial judge found that the luring led directly to sexual interference and planned hookups or meetings. And so the trial judge found that there was a virtual relationship over a two-year period between the accused and the victim, an online uh, interaction on Facebook, and the exchanges showed that the accused took advantage of the victim's vulnerability and uh, the fact that the victim ran away uh, and there was a request for a photo on Snapchat. Snapchat. So the trial judge did not disregard any of that evidence. She analyzed it in an overall context because luring uh, and given the time frame set out in in the count, Uh, the trial judge found that that would have been an incomplete picture to stick strictly to those dates. And uh, the appellants didn't appeal the sexual, uh, the, the sentence for sexual interference. So I think it's hard to argue that the trial judge failed to take into consideration all of the facts, uh, because when it came to the sexual interference count, she clearly took all of that into account. Yes, but once again, paragraph uh, 60 of her reasons, she talks about preparatory grooming. So her focus was really narrow. She was looking at the preparatory nature of the grooming rather than the ongoing nature of it. And what the what Justice Levesque found to be a situation of sexual exploitation that was not as time limited as being preparatory, like the trial judge found. Well, I think what the trial judge wanted to do was differentiate between the uh, offensive behavior and the uh, luring. Uh, so she was distinguishing between communication and communication with a view to perpetrating an offense. So she talked about preparatory in the sense that the expression 
grooming has been defined in the case law, but the preparatory nature of grooming, it, it goes to the manipulation, the psychological manipulation. And I think here the appellants are trying in a way to redefine this by going beyond simple messages. They're trying to suggest that this is creating a r actual manipulation. And uh, that's consistent with the count. So I don't know if that answers your question, Justice Kazerer. Well, it's an answer. Thank you. So it's our view, basically, that it is relevant. And you can't separate these things out. Uh, you can't separate the part of the decision that deals strictly with luring from the rest of the decision dealing with sexual interference. The fact that the uh, judge did that, I think it shows that she was aware of all the facts and the nature, the specific nature of the luring offense. And on the other hand, we would argue that the trial judge did not at any time uh, neglect the the victim's uh, side of things. Uh, there was some awkward wording. Uh, the, the trial judge didn't have the benefit of Friesen when she made her decision and talking about consent with an underage victim of of course is ill-advised uh, other terms could be used to define this concept of consent uh, to describe it but the trial judge expressly uh, dismissed the idea that the victim consented. She said in no way could that be an attenuating or a mitigating factor, the, the idea that the victim had consented. And furthermore, given the danger of the exploitation of youth and the importance of protecting youth, I think that that went to a heightened blameworthiness for the accused. So obviously the use of the term, uh, of, can be an indication of an error in principle. But because the trial judge specifically rejected the notion that consent could have any impact, could be relevant in any way, could mitigate in any way, I think that does away with the argument that there was an error in principle there. So if it was an error in principle to use the term consent, well, in our view, it had no impact at the end of the day. Well, your friend said it's not just a word it's a concept. And because of the wording of the offense in 151, and in the French version of 151, unlike the English, for reasons unknown to me, a child is described, it says, a child cannot give consent to such an act. So because luring is communication with a view to facilitating the commission of the offense. It's, it reflects a, a misunderstanding of the very basis of the, or the very foundation of the offense of luring. That's what your friend is saying. It goes beyond mere wording and goes to the very nature of the ju trial judge's reasoning. Justice Kazwer. I uh, side with the majority. Indeed, uh, the expression, when 
she says that she consented three times. Uh, once again, that's uh, not well said, but that expression is used when we consider the uh, reasons. It's a way of situating the luring, and we're not claiming that uh, luring is less serious because of that, because the relationship was already consummated, but we're just trying to... Uh, uh, we're looking at the grooming. Uh, obviously, that happened. And uh, in their uh, in their factum, the appellants say that uh, the first meeting with the victim, uh, during that time, the uh, uh, respondent uh, used a strategy to entrap her, uh, and at the trial level, the appellants uh, pleaded that too. You referred us to uh, paragraph uh, 58 of the trial judge where she says that the consent of the adolescent in this case uh, cannot be a mitigating factor. She says that, but before that, in paragraph 70, when she says that she already consented three times, and she doesn't say that that's a mitigating factor there. So we can see that uh, what she says, consented three times, has an impact on her analysis of what the crime of luring is. And in that sense, I agree with my colleague, Justice Kazurer. And a bit further, so in 58, she says it's not a mitigating factor, but the way she lays it out in paragraph 70, three times, she consented three kind times. When I read that, it certainly has, must have an influence on her analysis of the seriousness or the gravity of the offense. Answer. Thank you for your question, uh, Justice Cote. I think, once again, that we have to see uh, that uh, sentence as uh, the trial judge uh, trying to situate this in time, uh, because the luring, you know, was it was leading up to uh, trying to have sexual relation, relations. Uh, as compared to a so-called classic case of luring. So I don't believe that that sentence or uh, of the judge necessarily has the scope that might be attributed to it. Yes, it's uh, poorly said, I agree. And uh, it might be possible to uh, infer that she is uh, downplaying the gravity of the offense, but there is also a section of the ruling that refers to the harm done to the victim. And uh, that is, has n is not underestimated at all by the trial judge. And she specifically referred, as I say, to the harm to the victim. In paragraph 58, she says that the crime of luring had major impacts on the victim, that the victim mentioned in the exchanges that she felt used and exploited. Once again, she refers to the messages. And of course, that this kind of thing would leave uh, its scars on the victim. So she did distinguish between uh, the classic case of the anonymous predator who is who lurks on the internet from this case. So, uh, and 
obviously, so the respondent didn't commit the crime in that very way, but that doesn't downplay the gravity of it at all. So the absence of an aggravating factor can have an influence, I believe. The absence of an aggravating factor is not a mitigating factor, though. The, isn't the problem, then, that the classic case that seems to un underpin part of the trial judge's reasoning uh, the, isn't, isn't it possible the legislator didn't mean that? The legislator is not uh, uh, limiting himself to the preparatory grooming. The wording of 172.2 is broader than that. And uh, perhaps you're coming to that in your second argument. So since it's broader, it encompasses activities other than the classic case of luring or grooming, for example, anonymity. Sure, it's uh, terrible when someone takes advantage of anonymity to exploit a child, but when someone takes advantage of a relationship that's already been established with a child, that's perhaps even worse. So... The two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Uh, you're aggravating versus mitigating based on a classic case. I don't follow that answer. What I mean, Justice Kessler, is that uh, the absence of an aggravating factor will have an influence on the sentence, especially since many uh, cases were referred to by the trial. So, to distinguish, distinguish certain, or to mention certain case law does not downplay the gravity of the offense, and the case of the respondent was a situation where the offender was taking advantage of a pre-existing link to the victim, and uh, there... A reference was made to Rayo. In Rayo, the offender knew the victim since from the age of from five years old, and that uh, showed a degree of premeditation. And the consequences on the victim were much of for the victim were much worse because of this prior knowledge. The discussion of the community, for example in which the victim lived. But here we must also remember that the victim, or rather the offender's behavior could not be called uh, trickery and there was no abuse of authority. Yes, but he knew that the victim was vulnerable. He knew that she was living in a youth home and uh, that she was dependent on him in a way, and he took advantage of that. So there was abuse of the, the vulnerability of a child. And so it's not identical to Morrison or to Rayo, but they, these, those 
are facts that cannot be denied, and they were not denied by the trial judge. But perhaps they weren't taken into account with a sentence of five months. I understand uh, what you're saying, Justice Kazira, and I would come back to the fact that this uh, situation of exploitation was taken into account in the overall behavior of, of uh, the uh, respondent. But, but uh, once again, we can see this in the ruling where what uh, she was saying was that the it, this was taken into account in the count of sexual interference. Uh, my time is uh, rushing by, so I'm going to come to what the trial judge said and the appellant, the appellant's factum. They uh, is say that that uh, when uh, the judge said in paragraph 65 that the use of uh, social media made the encounters easily more easy than if than meeting in person so she recognizes the uh, the fact that uh, the victim was much more accessible uh, through social media so that has to do with the offensive luring. I'm pardon, pardon me. It's not the very essence at all. It it was uh, in secret. It this happened in secret. It's not just if I send a text message to someone. Uh, that's very a very effective way of communicating, but it's the fact that it is all done in secret. No one can find out. So I think that uh, that's what the legislator meant in 172.2. Yes, I understand your argument, Justice Kazurer, but what I was talking about in the ruling was to underscore the fact that the judge said that the luring in this case, through planning, the planning of the meetings, specifically led to the underlying offense, which was consummated. So I don't think she downplayed anything by talking about a generational, a generational choice. In fact, the actual expression was generational problem to underscore what a scourge this is. The use of telecommunication, which uh, gives easy access to children and uh, raises all kinds of other problems in this regard. So I don't think that the trial judge ever reasoned that this was downplaying um, the fact that this uh, can, is, it's easy to have this all happen in secret and to access children. But with regard to this generational choice, did the trial judge uh, take, didn't did she see this as a generational, as a mitigating factor when I look at the paragraph 66? No. Thank you for your question, uh, Justice Cote. No, I think that to paragraph 66 and 67 is simply a way of distinguishing the case of the respondent from other uh, classic uh, predators who, uh, 
seek out victims because we're talking about a relationship here which was very harmful with the victim indeed in fact there were some distinctions that were made so I think once again that we have to take into account of the overall context and not simply uh, uh, take this uh, uh, expression out of context so that being said as I said uh, earlier I'm going to go on to the uh, uh, concurrent uh, versus consecutive sentence that is uh, a separate issue for us and in 55 of Friesen, uh, the court recognizes the discretion or pow power of uh, imposing concurrent sentences. And uh, so s single criminal adventures can uh, uh, lead to concurrent sentencing, whereas a number of them can lead to consecutive sentencing. So the sentencing doesn't take into account for example case law recognizes uh, that a, the single criminal adventure concept can lead to uh, concurrent sentencing I talked about uh, the uh, uh, cumulative circumstances in this case, the source of the uh, criminal behavior and uh, societal interests, which come up in Rayo. And this is important because uh, concurrent versus con consecutive was addressed at the trial level. and we can see in Rayo that there are uh, important decisions to be made. Here, I believe, and uh, that's what the uh, appeal, uh, appeal judges said too, is uh, that the offenses were temporarily subsumed and that could support the, the findings of the trial judge that a concurrent sentence was appropriate. Yes, but in most cases where the incomplete uh, offense of luring is consummated, in a sense, there will be a short uh, uh, period between the two, and according to your reasoning, Uh, this could always fall into the trap of a single criminal adventure that just that would justify a finding of concurrent sentences. Doesn't that uh, reduce Parliament's uh, discretion in creating a separate uh, sentence for a, sep a se separate sentence for a separate of offense? Well, when I was talking about the factual context that could help determine whether a sentence should be consecutive or concurrent, in Rayo, it's important to point out that the accused had never been charged with the ultimate offense that the luring was supposed to lead up to.
So there was no connection between uh, luring and other offenses. So in fact, if a concurrent sent sentence Im was imposed in Rio for luring, there was the whole issue of a free ride because the accused would not have been punished for that. But I think that's the facts are different in this case and the chronology is different. So it's hard because the context is different. The trial judge said that the sentence could have been different if the luring had preceded the sexual interference, if it had been more of a preparatory grooming. But in this case, the offense uh, had already, the, the interference had already occurred. So the whole premeditative nature of luring is different uh, and maybe that would have led to a consecutive sentence if the facts had been different. So obviously the trial judge saw the connection between the two different offenses and uh, took the facts in the very specific unique uh, facts of this case into account and she said that the sentences could be served concurrently under the circumstances. In Rao, when it came to the court's discretion to impose consecutive or concurrent sentences, the trial judge in Rao had simultaneously under the concept of a combined sentence and uh, a single offense, uh, the trial judge imposed a concurrent uh, sentence. But in this case, the trial judge was well aware of Rao and took the trouble of distinguishing it uh, based on the facts in the case at bar. And as was mentioned earlier, you asked a question, I believe Justice Rowe, about the principle of a combined sentence and the trial judge found in paragraph 80 that the sentence that she was arriving at was reasonable under the circumstances so the and the dis, the dissenting judge at the court of appeal found that 12 months for luring served concurrently also was an adequate re reflection of the accused's blame, moral blameworthiness. So it, uh, the appellant's position would be uh, excessive in our view given the uh, positives, uh, the, the rehabilitation that the accused has uh, shown, the progress he's made. So uh, I appreciate the appellant's uh, submission to that they that they would s stick with the trial judge's sentence in this case, uh, and but this leads me to the whole question of proportionality. On the count of sexual interference, uh, there were four offenses, but when it came to luring the trial judge said that there was a, a 
two-year period for the sexual interference, but only six months for the luring. So it's hard to imagine why the sentence for luring could be harsher than the sentence for the sexual interference in this case. Clearly, the court's hands are not necessarily tied when it comes to this, but I think there has to be a proportionality between the, the sentences for the two different offenses in this case. I think uh, it also goes to the nature of the offense of luring. Imposing a harsher sentence for luring than for sexual interference in this case. In other words, the, the idea that the preparatory aspects of the offense would be more harshly punished than the actual commission of the other offense it seems that that's a bit out of whack. And what happened in this case is more consistent uh, when taken as a whole. That said, I'm going to move now to the issue of constitutionality. It's our submission that a five-month sentence is uh, fair and proportionate, especially when we take the contextual and comparative approach under hills, and 12 months would be grossly disproportionate. Seven months more imprisonment would be excessive. Uh, just strictly in on a quantum basis, the five-month sentence currently is half of the minimum and m almost the full amount if it were a uh, summary offense as opposed to an indictable offense. Are you limiting your constitutional analysis to this uh, simple mathematical calculation like the trial judge did? No, not at all. Justice Cote, what I submit to this court is that the seven months extra is significant because the victim, the offender rather, was relatively young and had no criminal record. Uh, there were no background problems with the family and so on. The, uh, he, he's employed. He admitted that he alone was at fault. So there was some acknowledgement of the wrong and of the harm done. So given all the personal characteristics of the offender, it's our view that the principle of moderation is important here. If the potential for rehabilitation were assessed based on his youth. And I, th I think the case law recognizes that these are all factors that uh, are of some significance. And when you consider the, the age, when you consider the uh, cognitive issues of the victim and so on, it, all of these factors need to be weighed uh, and also the effect of the period of incarceration, what the, the impact that would have on the offenders, all aspects of his life. Uh, he's early in life. Uh, all of that has to be considered. It's not insignificant for an offender uh, who's run afoul of the law uh, and 
there's also the, the, the deterrent effect to be considered. So deterrence and condemnation, these are things that this court said in, uh, in Friesen, these are the things that should take priority. It is true that those are the primary principles in sentencing for this type of offense, but it's our view that the other criteria are important too. And a period of seven months for a case like this uh, is not insignificant. And given his prognosis for rehabilitation, he, those, those are important factors that, and it shouldn't necessarily lead to an excessive period of imprisonment. I just think we shouldn't lose sight of the principle of proportionality. Deterrence and condemnation should not take total precedence over everything else. This is a young person, a first offense and so on. Uh, first uh, time getting in trouble with the law. Uh, so, and this person has never before, had no criminal record. So how, from a utilitarian point of view, if you will, how could more jail time serve any real purpose? And I'll come back to this when it comes to the issue of reincarceration, potentially. But uh, th th this offender's incarceration already served uh, some purpose and progress was made. And it's, it's hard to imagine how further reincarceration re could serve any real purpose uh, or serve any more of a deterrent or uh, disc disincentive uh, purpose. So let me move now to the question of a reasonable foreseeability. Basically, we concede that in the respondent's case, it's more difficult to establish a disproportionality between the, the mandatory minimum and the sentence actually imposed. But in some hypothetical cases, the disproportionality could be even more flagrant. And we mentioned some of these in our written arguments. At the lower end of the scale, uh, if it were a summary conviction offense, it's easier to imagine uh, a disproportionality. And when it's a mandatory minimum and a summary offense, well, the Crown has the election based on the gravity of the offense. And uh, it's hard to imagine that the one-year mandatory minimum would be appropriate in a, in a case where the, the Crown made an election and, and in another case uh, where one Crown might have elected to proceed by indictable offense and the other by summary conviction. So when you look at the circumstances that are unique to the offender, I would draw the court's attention to one decision in particular, the Darren case in 2021. So it was 
post Friesen and the accused immediately admitted their fault. The victim had a serious uh, uh, mental limitations, and uh, but it was found that the accused would be extremely vulnerable in jail, and the expert report showed that incarceration would in fact be counterproductive for that offender. So in that case, the court concluded that uh, a mandatory minimum sentence of one year would be inappropriate and allowed the accused to serve the sentence in the community. So we're comparing two sentences. I think in the case of Mr. Hills, for example, it was flagrant and it shows how personal circumstances of the offender can be have an attenuating effect and in Friesen the example of offenders with serious mental limitations was used and it makes a lot of sense because if sexual offenses against children are highly blameworthy well the offender should at least be aware of the harm they're doing and it's harder to prove that when the offender has serious mental limitations, cognitive limitations, and isn't necessarily even aware of the harm that may result, both the immediate and the long-term damage that they may be doing to the victim. So it makes their behavior, incidentally, less blameworthy. And the scope and extent of luring may in some circumstances lead to a disproportionate sentence too, the mandatory minimum that is, because in Morrison the court recognized that a whole range of activities could be captured under that offense. And the age of the parties is also a relevant factor. And uh, also the immediate aspect of uh, the luring, because we're talking about continuous grooming. But, and as, but as mentioned in Morrison, once it's proven that the accused uh, had the intent of uh, committing the underlying offense, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that luring is always a deliberate process, but it's a way for the predator to try to win the trust of the victim. So then it is not necessary to have uh, evidence uh, to a certain degree of uh, grooming. It is facilitate is very broad in scope. So I believe if we look at those circumstances, then obviously there was a specific intent and that was underscored in Morrison. But it was, as it was mentioned in Morrison, the reasons are specifically limited to the police operation. So in a case where we're talking about a real victim under 18, 
or under 16 or under 14 according to the case. The level of mens rea is not as high and I think we have to make that distinction. When we're talking about a real victim, then there is real harm, concrete harm that is measurable. Although it was mentioned that if we want something decisive, then we can't uh, attach too much importance to that aspect. So there are many in factors involved, for example, the use of uh, trickery, grooming, grooming, and uh, the age difference, the type of relationship, the purpose. I think uh, Justice Rowe indicated in one of his questions that communicate, the communications don't even have to be of a sexual nature. We simply have to prove that contact was made with the ultimate objective that may not be uh, clear in the messages that uh, there is an underlying offense. So I don't think the high level of mens rea it can justify the constitutionality of the uh, mandatory minimum. Case law shows that there are offenders who will be captured under that provision, especially uh, people with mental health problems. And in that case, clearly uh, the mandatory minimum is grossly disproportionate. I'm going to now look at uh, section one of the charter and the justification. As this uh, court said in Boudreaux, Section 12 can be justified. The appellants uh, did not uh, manage to uh, justify this onus. So it is reasonable to think that uh, mandatory minimums can contribute to certain objectives, but the problem with this is that uh, there are other ways to achieve this pressing and substantial goal beside mandatory minimums. In reality, conceptually speaking, insofar as a threshold is set, then the mandatory minimum does not always apply. I understand the intent of legislator, but the simple fact that uh, there's a threshold means that the mandatory minimum applies to the offender at the lower end of the range. With regard to the remedy, we feel that the the court uh, should uh, declare the mandatory minimum of no force or effect. The court set aside in Friesen the method of uh, broad interpretation, interpretation to set guidelines on the premise 
that of uh, substantial risk. Sorry, to, so to substitute a one-year sentence for a six-month sentence. which is also challenged, in our opinion. It is uncertain that the legislator wanted a specific duration of six months, especially since it is difficult to speculate on the intent of the legislator. Furthermore, the legislator could have chosen other solutions that were not simply a mandatory imprisonment sentence. The legislator could have set maximum sentences, and even if uh, we were talking yep. about simply duration. Uh, the, the sentence could have been set at less than six months. And it, there's a certain uh, inconsistency when we talk about a mandatory minimum that applies to summary as opposed to indictment. In fact, declaring a provision of no force or effect means that certain gaps need to be filled. If uh, there's, if the legislator feels that the mandatory minimum should be six months, well then, that would seem to be the best solution. The mandatory minimum of one year it came into force in 2012, so it's difficult to speculate on what would have been done at the time. But the fact remains that uh, the use of mandatory minimums is the object of debate, uh, especially with the, the effects we've seen. And in fact, some of them have been uh, eliminated under C5. So allowing the legislator to fill the gap allows for a more uh, updated choice. And I would like to add that, for example, uh, the fact that the mandatory minimums only apply, uh, or rather summary as opposed to indictment, uh, leads to two different uh, results. Well, judges take into account this kind of thing to set proportionate sentences. And the use of the uh... les par exemple les les, les accusés pourraient être exposés euh, à la situation selon laquelle the use of reading in 
means that uh, these types of uh, prosecution So, so I think there are considerations as well with regard to the trial courts as to whether this remedy should be used. Very briefly, I'm going to talk about uh, the incarceration of the res re respondent. There is precedent in this case in R versus Souter. There was a decision to be made about the uh, usefulness of uh, imprisoning uh, the respondent. And in this case, the sentence was served, and the fact that so much time has passed since then uh, and means that uh, the, we can assume that the uh, respondent has uh, made a con uh, considerable progress. If uh, we say that sentencing is to protect society, then I don't see how a reincarceration who could serve this objective. The respondent was 22 at the time. Now today he is 31. And the process has uh, lasted yeah, many years. Seven years have gone by. In fact, seven and a half years have gone by since the offenses. And uh, the respondent uh, uh, has been uh, free for over two years. And if we look at uh, compelling evidence, well, we can see that the parole board was best placed to assess the risk uh, that this that the, the respondent uh, uh, could present to society. And there was an assessment done when he was in prison. And the respondent uh, finished his probation period in uh, July 2022. And that period is uh, supposed to uh, weed out any uh, criminal tendencies. And... the importance of probation is clear and uh, an order of probation was requested but the judge uh, asked for 18 months and if uh, the sentence asked for by the appellants had been imposed it it would have already have been served by this time. And if we consider that sentence, if it had been imposed, then uh, uh, the respondent could have been uh, freed after two-thirds of his sentence. <laughs> and that is also a very unusual situation. The uh, appellants appealed twice, and uh, I think that the the timeliness or the uh, you know the the uh, 
the request to have him serve the rest of his time, I think that uh, if he had been incarcerated, his uh, sentence uh, would mean that he would have been deprived of liberty for over two years, which uh, takes into account the consequences of imprisonment. The respondent would have had to uh, lose his housing, get his job twice over. So that uh, uh, closes my arguments. Thank you very much. Merci, Maître. Thank you. Thank you, Council. Christine Renault for the intervener. Thank you. Justices Ulakut. It's not often that this honorable court may hear about the situation and perspective of Nunavik's Inuit, Nunavimut. So it is therefore with great honor and feeling very privileged that we seize this opportunity this morning to present the submissions of the Nunavik Civil Liberties Association. The matter that is being heard and debated today is far from being theoretical for Nunavimut. They are the most overrepresented indigenous people in Quebec's judicial services and prisons, a situation that is not only not improving, but that has been persistently worsening, as dramatically documented by the Vienne Commission of Inquiry. Without getting into dry statistics, we do find it very telling, however, to mention that in 2021 alone, there were more than 4,500 crimes against the person that were judicialized in Nunavik, on a population of less than 14,000 people. Sadly then, most Nunavimut will often become both offenders and um, accused of criminal offenses at some points or various points throughout their lives. And this is the dire impact of recent colonization in the region that led to severe intergenerational trauma. Unemployment, world record suicide rates, especially amongst the youth, a severe housing crisis, lack of public services, Nunavik is too often forgotten and left out, and its people face hardships that is experienced by few other Canadians. With more than 90% of the population in Nunavik being Inuit, almost every sentencing decision involves the application of the Gladu principles and the Aboriginal specific part of section 718.2e of the criminal code. But there are no prisons in Nunavik. Imprisonment therefore means that Nunavimut have to be imprisoned thousands of kilometers down south in a culture, a language, an environment that is alien to them. This also means they won't be able to see family members for months or years on end. The NCLA contends that imprisonment is harsher for Quebec's Inuit than for most other Quebecers or Canadians, a factor that ought to be taken into consideration when sentencing Inuit. The NCLA takes this opportunity to remind this Honourable Court that the Canadian criminal justice system and its prisons were imposed upon Nunavik's Inuit, who, until fairly recently, were living in societies abiding by Inuit laws. But Inuit legal traditions and culture are still present, even if they are not enforced. They survived the colonization, and this is relevant for the matter at hand today. Minimum mandatory sentences of imprisonment, such as the impugned one, deprive courts of properly applying the GLADU principles in crafting proportional and individual sentences for Nunavik's Inuit. More specifically, it hinders judges' ability to apply the second set of circumstances of GLADU, prohibiting sentencing judges from taking into account Inuit laws and Nunavik community perspective. It is the NCLA's strong submission that until self-determination may be attained, 
in order to rehabilitate offenders as well as protect Inuit victims and communities and to stop the revolving doors of the justice system in Nunavik, sentencing judges must be able at every sentencing decision to take into account Inuit laws and community perspective. Nunavimut communities are small, very small. Some villages of, are of only merely 200 or 400 people. In these circumstances and in such a hostile environment, everyone becomes essential and part of a close-knit community. The involvement of the community was thus always a core aspect of Inuit laws and sentencing. And in that context, Nunavimut laws developed primarily not to punish an offender, but rather to find solutions to bring back harmony to the community and to help an offender better himself. For the NCLA, the best way to protect Inuit societies is by applying Inuit laws. The NCLA therefore submits that minimum mandatory sentences of imprisonment, such as the impugned one, render futile the gladiator principles when sentencing Nunavimut offenders. And this in turn prevents efficient sentences and thus fails to contribute to a just, peaceful and safe society halting the slow path towards reconciliation. It is also a submission that, in light of all that's been previously expressed, for many Nunavik's Inuit, in many reasonably foreseeable cases, the impugned mandatory sentence would constitute cruel and unusual punishment, contrary to Section 12 of the Canadian Charter. Thank you very much, Nakormik. Merci. Um, Maître Hugo... Hugo Casey. Yes. Good morning, good afternoon, rather, Justices. I agree with what uh, my the counsel for the respondent said when it comes to sentencing. But I would add that in many decisions on sentencing for crimes against children, the courts have acknowledged the seriousness of those offenses. And that's been the case since before Friesen. So we're of the view that the mandatory minimum should be struck down because it doesn't allow the sentencing judge to weigh all of the attenuating and mitigating and aggravating factors under Section 718 at SEC of the Criminal Code. Justice Cote asked a question to my friend, the counsel for the respondent, about the impact of Friesen on this case. Indeed, Friesen does have an impact on sentencing for crimes against children, particularly sexual crimes. But Friesen has a limited impact on the determination of the constitutionality of the mandatory minimum that's before the court today. In Friesen, the court said, and this is in connection with what I said before, the court refers to prior inconsistent decisions of the court that should no longer be of any guidance in sentencing or in when there, where there's a range of possible sentences. Before Friesen, there were decisions that were inconsistent with what this court decided in Friesen. Next. The respondent mentioned rightly 
that the principles of proportionality should be considered. It's a fundamental principle that will be found in sections 25 to 35 of Friesen. And it's a principle that was, has also been repeated since then. So despite the fact that Friesen raise, raises the range of sentences, generally in cases of sex offenses against children, there are cases where a jail sentence would not be appropriate and where other solutions should be considered. And here, my friend Ms. Renault, who spoke on behalf of the Nunavik Civil Liberties Association. That would be a, a good example, what she gave. These are examples that crop up in Friesen. Mention is made of the type, this type of example, where this court said that the other relevant factors should not be disregarded. For example, mental health issues, cognitive limitations, and so on. When it comes to the degree of mens rea, the appellant is calling for this mandatory minimum to be upheld, and they said that there was a heightened mens rea. However, other than cases involving stings, police sting operations, I think the heightened mens rea is no obstacle to conviction. For example, in Friesen, it says that 88% sexual offenses, 88% of the perpetrators are known to the victim. So when it comes to this issue of belief of, about the age of the victim, well, that evidence is relatively easily uh, adduced, just like willful blindness. And the means of communication that are often used, like Facebook or other social media, there's automatic archiving, and that also makes the evidence quite a bit easier. So the impact of a heightened mens rea is not all that important when it comes to determining the constitutionality. Thank you. Thank you very much, counsel. Nea Chug. Good afternoon. My name is Neha Chug, and I'm counsel for the intervener, the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic. The Schleifer Clinic advocates for a legal analysis that includes the consideration of gender-based violence and how the internet can be used as a means to harm women with various intersecting identities, including sex, gender identity, youth, race, disability, amongst other factors. With this lens, even with the rapid evolution of technological practices, the exploitative, predatory, and harmful effects that continue to have lasting impacts on women should inform our courts when determining appropriate and fit sentences. Gender-based violence encompasses any act of violence perpetrated against an individual because of their sex, gender identity, sexual preference, or because of perceived adherence to socially defined norms of masculinity or femininity. 
It is rooted in gender inequality, abuse of power, and harmful norms. Intersectionality helps us understand the patterns of sexual violence even more clearly. It illuminates the reality of survivors who live at the intersections of multiple marginalized identities, like Indigenous women, women living with disabilities, or trans people of color who experience sexual violence at higher rates. Parliament added the offense of child luring to the criminal code in 2002 to combat the very real threat posed by adults who attempt to groom or lure children and youth victims by electronic means. Plainly, the essential elements of the luring offense are that an adult is communicating with a child for an adult's sexual benefit, using the available communication means via a computer to accomplish this offense. A nuanced, flexible, and contemporaneous analysis of the electronic mechanisms and mediums used to lure young girls is necessary to stay current with rapidly changing uses of social media and communication devices, and in order to ensure that a complete understanding of the impact of child luring on women and girls is reflected at sentencing. Children now primarily use the internet to communicate, and it is these communications that are the underpinnings of Section 172.1 Sub 1 of the Criminal Code. The factual scenarios that were first contemplated by this section involved an adult, typically using the guise of anonymity, accessing space on the internet, like a chat room, where children were most likely to frequent. Since the enactment of this statute, the computing means and mediums for these types of communications contemplated by this section have changed rapidly. Anonymity or false identity may form a relevant part of the analysis in a particular case, but is not a necessary element in every situation of child luring. The wording of the offense in this section does not addre address the issue of the offender's identity being known or unknown. The Schleifer Clinic advocates for a departure from a formulaic and limiting definition of luring and as an adaptation to current trends in the information age where internet usage has seen a rapid shift in the last few years, especially during the pandemic. The internet, while an extraordinary tool, comes with high risks as it continues to change and evolve and potentially be used for exploitative purposes. Given the advancement in internet communication and the widespread use and access to technology for people of all ages, the Schleifer Clinic advocates for a deeper understanding of how advancement in internet communication has the potential to perpetuate gender-based violence in this digital age. Are, are your submissions directed at how the court or courts should interpret the offence, or are we talking about sentencing? Thank you, Justice Rowe. My uh, comments are directed at both, in fact. I urge the courts at every stage of the proceeding to have a deep understanding of how internet technologies are used, how the social media is being used by children and adults of uh, today's day. I'm arguing for a contemporaneous understanding of int the internet as facilitating all forms of communication uh, currently and contemporaneously. Thank you. In, in the clinic's breadth of experiences of working with survivors of gender-based violence, when abuse, especially sexual abuse, starts as a child, it leaves a survivor with trauma. I believe my time is up. Thank you for this opportunity.
Thank you. Uh, Caroline Sanini. Justices, I will first respond to a question posed separately by Justices Cote and Kassirer, which is whether Friesen affects this court's analysis. CDAS submits that in considering whether a mandatory minimum sentence is constitutional, the answer is no. Society has always considered sexual offenses against children to be serious. Friesen affirms society's view of the inherent harm and culpability of these crimes. It re-emphasized that the key considerations for sentencing such crimes are denunciation and deterrence. Friesen provides clear guidance for sentencing judges to impose a stiff sentence for the morally blameworthy. It makes the mandatory minimum sentence at issue entirely unnecessary. Sentences imposed under Friesen can account for the concerns that lie at the heart of Section 12. I will now address our main submission, which is that characteristics of individuals who are overrepresented in our justice system should figure prominently and consistently in the Section 12 analysis. What we propose is not a novel approach. This court has considered characteristics of marginalized offenders throughout its Section 12 jurisprudence. In Hills and Hillbach, this court recognized that personal characteristics from overrepresented groups in our criminal justice system are relevant to the construction of reasonable hypotheticals. The critical challenge now is to identify what characteristics are relevant under Section 12 of the Charter and what prominence they should be given in the analysis. Our submissions focus on two groups of marginalized offenders who are reasonably foreseeable as caught by the impugned provisions and for whom the mandatory minimum sentences can be cruel and unusual. Today, our submissions will focus on persons with cognitive impairments. In the appeal tomorrow, our submissions will address youthful hypothetical offenders. Persons with cognitive impairments are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Reasonable hypotheticals concerning these individuals should play a prominent role in the Section 12 analysis for the impugned provisions. We say this for two reasons. The first is that child luring covers a wide range of conduct and some of these offenders have reduced moral culpability because of cognitive impairments. The second is the inordinate impact imprisonment has on such offenders. With respect to our first submission, an offender's moral culpability is a critical factor in determining gross disproportionality. It will have greater significance when the misconduct covered by the offense is broad and includes conduct that does not fall at the gravest end of the spectrum. The luring provisions at issue meet these requirements. At one end of the spectrum are adult perpetrators who intentionally lure children on the internet to sexually exploit their vulnerabilities. These offenders are properly subject to significant sentences. At the other end of the spectrum are offenders who operate at a more childlike level, who do not understand the gravity of their actions due to cognitive impairments, and whose communications are at the early stages of luring or lack explicit or implicit sexual content. These are the reasonably foreseeable offenders for whom we say the mandatory minimum sentences at issue are infirm. Madam, uh, Madam Chair, I, would you mind if I ask a, a question? I see the time is almost out for Ms. Sanini. Thank you for your answer about the impact of freezing on mandatory minimum. 
and, and, and you give a good answer. It, it, it affects the range, but not the mandatory minimum. But could one not argue that it raises the bar of morally blameworthy behavior in all offenses of luring where real children are involved? In other words, the, the call that the court set out in Friesen beyond the range also raised that minimal bar. Is that where, where unlike Morrison, where real children are involved? Certainly. It, it can be said to raise the bar, but in our submission, with a certain offenders, such as those with cognitive impairments, they will have a, a substantially reduced moral blameworthiness where their condition undermines their capacity. And in that instance, the bar will be lowered. Their condition will have to undermine their capacity, we say, in three ways for this to be the case. And that's to restrain urges and impulses, to appreciate their acts were morally wrong, and to comprehend the link between the court's punishment and the crime for which they are convicted. And the importance of this is that the principles of deterrence and denunciation, which Friesen emphasize, assume less weight for those offenders. Thank is your you. argument about uh, cognitive impairment, though, really directed at this offence, or is it directed at all mandatory minima throughout the criminal code? Because it seems to me um, there's nothing specific about uh, child lowering where cognitive impairment is, uh, becomes a reasonable hypothetical where the offence can be committed. It seems to be sort of cut across the criminal code. Cognitive impairment is certainly cut across the criminal code. However, with respect to cognitive impairment, it has a certain element that is, is distinct. And that is the fact that these individuals, as Justice Kyrgyzstanis recognized in Morrison, are more likely to be engaged online with other individuals and not understand the moral magnitude of their conduct. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Maître Thériault, uh, une réplique. Ms. Thériault, reply. Good afternoon. Ah, so it's Mr. Zuval. I, I mix you both up. I'm very sorry about that. Very briefly concerning the respondent's uh, reference to section 12 because he mentioned that with regard to the effects on the respondent respondent he talked about the personal situation and of course those are relevant in the analysis of uh, proportionality but by focusing solely on the situation of the respondent we lose sight of the offense and the harm that it caused the victim and uh, that exercise of the balance is, is we must remember that the legislator is uh, targeting denunciation and deterrence. And so I'd like to come back to something that was said where one text message is enough without even any sexual connotation but uh, for reasonable foreseeable applications we need clear cases whereas i'm saying that whereas uh, one text message could be enough well what i would argue is that that text message needs to be clear 
because otherwise the Crown has to show without any reasonable doubt that this was an offence. And so I don't think that conduct is any less blamable if a specific text message is sent to, to achieve the objective than in sending, than sending many text message, messages. It simply means that grooming happens over a longer period. So to come back to the analysis, to claim that only one text message is less harmful than many, I think that that is uh, bringing a value judgment on how the child will react to that or how the child will perceive the text and the impact that it will have on the child in future. As the Coeur said in Friesen, we don't have all the portrait, we don't have an idea of all the consequences when the sentence is handed down. And so we have to remember that uh, severe harm has been caused to the child in these cases. So yes, there is a broad scope, but in all cases, uh, we know that the individual knowingly did this and uh, the de facto consent, which we have to stop saying, uh, that is led to because of this grooming is because of a power imbalance between the adult and the, and the child. I think we have to say that this is false consent. It is uh, consent uh, that is uh, forced because of this power imbalance between an adult and a child. So I would argue here that in these cases, even uh, with a single text, six months is an appropriate uh, is an appropriate sentence. Perhaps we can say that. The uh, the victim succumbed succumbed rather than uh, consented. Yes, we could say succumbed, but we could also say that it's false consent that was uh, forced or induced by this uh, communication. I have a last question. I don't know whether it will be up to you, Mr. Duval or uh, Ms. Theriot, but I want to be sure before we stop today that we're on the same page with regard to the calculation of, a, of any potential sentence. If, hypothetically speaking, because we're we're in, a we're talking about reasonable hypotheticals or unreasonable ones, tell me, for sexual uh, interference, okay, that doesn't change. But let's imagine that the court decides on 12 months for luring. Let's just assume that. And then let's assume that the court decides that the sentences must be served, must be served consecutively according to the general rule. And, but in, that in this case, the combined sentence principle, which would apply does not change anything. So, when, once again, I'm speaking hypothetically, that leaves us uh, with 22 months, 10 plus, plus 12, which was below what you are asking, or what you were asking uh, at the trial level. And then we're, talk we're talking about uh, conditional sentencing. So if you follow my reasoning here, what happens to the conditional sentencing? or with the conditional sentencing. 
if I understand correctly. You, no. When I say conditional sentencing, are you calling for reincarceration? I'm. No, I'm. No, no. Where I'm really talking about something concrete here. Yes. So to be sure, you're talking about a a sentence which would be ten plus twelve for twenty two months. Is that correct? Yes, when you go through the three steps that you talked about, uh, according to the class, classic method, we come to, so we say 10 plus 12, 20 months, 22 months, which is less than uh, two years minus a day. What do we do with that? Well, as I said earlier, uh, the leftover, the remaining sentence would be 12 months. So in light of the representations made by the respondent and in light of uh, Hillback, we cannot uh, say clearly before you today that uh, justice would be better served uh, given the time elapsed between the original trial and depending on when you hand your ruling down. But I would argue that uh, that is not a, it's not an admission of the gravity so of the offense. So you leave that to this discussion of the court, even though the discretion of the court uh, interests you less in your general arguments. Thank you, Ms. Theriot and uh, Mr. Duval, and thank you very much to all the parties for their arguments. We will be taking uh, this case under advisement. Thank you very much. <laughs>